All aboard for family fun at the Kentucky Railway Museum. Take a nostalgic trip aboard LNN's historic Lebanon branch. Special events throughout the year include train robberies, dine by rail, car show, and Christmas trains. Stroll through the museum. Exhibits include large HO model train layout, hand cars, steam whistles, and much more. For more information, hop aboard our website at kyrail.org or call 800-272-0152. The Kentucky Railway Museum. Yay! All right. Okay, let's do this. Welcome to The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this is the 45th episode. Whoa. First, I need to issue an apology 45 episodes in with much chagrin. Um, I I have been unable to access my Facebook account uh, since Mother's Day. So if you've tried to message me there, well, I haven't gotten it. More embarrassing... I found out that the contact form on my actual website, thepastandthecurious.com, wasn't working, like, ever. So I had hundreds of messages there that have gone unanswered, and I'm very sorry about that. If you emailed, I did not ignore you. I'm just a knucklehead about some things, and I hope you forgive me. That issue has been resolved, though, so I'm back in business there. Um, I'm excited about this episode. It's all about parents. These are some parents who did some pretty cool stuff. Now, the second story is focused on a family who helped in the Underground Railroad. It's not graphic in how we talk about enslavement, but it is realistic, and that's important. I think you'll really like hearing it, at least I hope so. Um, I also have to thank my friends Greg and Abigail Maupin for lending their excellent voices to the first story. They are a delight, and they do delightful things, including a musical act called Ranny Gazoo. Thanks to you, as always, it's a pleasure to create this show for your ears. So let's go. Exploration is dangerous work. There are unknowns, challenging landscapes, severe weather to contend with, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. At extreme locations. Or just actual non-metaphorical icebergs. And everything gets much more difficult. Early expeditions to the Arctic and Antarctic circles near the North and South Poles were some of the most incredible undertakings in history. Of course, there were plenty of failures, but every time someone tried, it helped the people who came after learn a little bit more. By the early 1900s, several different parties from many different places had succeeded in exploring the frigid areas and returning to tell the tale. Ada Delatuck was born not too far from this brutal cold. She first opened her eyes in 1898 in Alaska, not far from the city of Nome, which is on the west-central coast. At one time, Alaska was known to Americans as Seward's Folly, because Secretary of State William Seward purchased the land from Russia for $7 million in 1867. People thought it was a terrible mistake and a waste of money. But when gold and oil were discovered there, Seward was like, Who's laughing now, y'all? Seward's folly, more like Seward's stroke of genius that you all were super wrong about. Okay, man, we get it. Anyway, Alaska would still not even become an official U.S. territory until Ada was a teenager. She was Inupiat, one of the indigenous groups of people native to the land. But growing up, she never learned the survival ways and traditions of her tribe. 
She was raised by missionaries, people who moved to the area to set up a school in order to convert people to their religion. It's a circumstance that happened to many Native Americans, and as a result, many traditions were lost for generations, some forever. In school, Ada learned to read and write English, read the Bible, and learned cooking and other domestic skills. The reading and writing served her well, but as you might have guessed in a story about exploration, these domestic skills would not go near as far in helping her as more traditional skills like hunting, tracking, and survival might have. As a young adult, <clears throat> 16, she married a man named Jack Blackjack. Yep, you heard that right. Jack, Jack Blackjack. Blackjack. No, he was not a cartoon outlaw. Nor was he a professional poker player. He was a dog musher, hauling freight across Alaska on a sled pulled by dogs. Together they had three kids. Sadly, only one survived, a boy named Bennett. But one day Jack Blackjack left the family high and dry. He just up and left her in the middle of nowhere, which, in frigid Alaska, can be a pretty serious predicament. Though he was not the greatest of guys, she did keep his greatest of names and earned her future fame as Ada Blackjack. When Jack Blackjack deserted her, she was 40 miles from their home in Nome, and she and Bennett walked the entire way back in the bitter Alaskan cold. To make matters worse, Bennett was very sick with tuberculosis, an infection of the lungs. So Ada, quite a small woman, carried the boy much of the way. She desperately wanted to get her son treatment for his illness, but could not afford to do so, which must have been a terrible feeling for her. Money was what she needed, so she looked for a way to earn some. Word traveled fast in Nome because there weren't a lot of people there, and she caught wind of a unique opportunity. A famous explorer named uh, Wilhelmer Stephenson was making plans for an expedition. He was very famous for his Arctic explorations, so the news attracted a lot of attention. Stephenson was planning a trip to Wrangell Island, which is west of Alaska, off the northern coast of Siberia. If you know anything about Siberia, you know it is a very cold part of Russia. And Wrangell Island is north of that, surrounded by frigid water which turned to solid ice much of the year. Stephenson wanted to claim the island for Canada. He must have missed the memo that it belonged to Russia. Plus, Canada didn't even want it. He heard that, though, and decided instead to claim it for Great Britain, feeling a bit of allegiance to the crown there. Great Britain's reaction was basically, Whatever, man. We don't really want that island either. For some reason, he didn't really hear that because it remained his plan despite the lack of enthusiasm from the government. This dude just really wanted that island. Four young scientists were chosen for the journey, each one feeling very starstruck by the explorer and eager to win his favor. But the roster was not yet complete. They'd need someone else for the year-long expedition. Someone to cook. Handle the medical needs. Repair their extreme weather survival gear. Which was mostly reindeer hide and furs. This teammate wouldn't just be a seamstress, but an... Extreme Stress! 
That was where Ada came in. And, by the way, they had no idea just how extreme she could be. The $50 per month they were offering was a tremendous amount of money at the time. Still, she struggled with the decision. Being separated from her beloved child would be agonizing. Plus, the journey was a terrible risk, but if she made it back, she could afford treatment for her son. There were no other options she saw that would earn her this much money. It must have been heartbreaking to take her son to the foster home. In the best-case scenario, she wouldn't see him for a year. Worst-case scenario? Who knows? But she knew it was the only way she could save her dear Bennett. She had to take the risk. Ada bid a tearful goodbye to her only boy and joined the expedition. Stephenson thanked the five travelers, wished them luck, and gave them advice. Wait. Hold up. You're not coming with us? No, it's cold. But you're the famous explorer. Yeah, so what do I have to gain? I'm already famous. You guys and gal will be fine. See ya. They were all pretty horrified to learn they'd be going without the experienced explorer, and immediately their anxiety shot up a few notches. Despite this, they climbed into the boat that would take them to the Arctic island. For a while, things were mostly fine. Ada was depressed for the early part, being apart from her child, isolated, and in a desolate environment was overwhelming. But slowly she got used to her circumstance and focused on the jobs at hand. The scientists collected information, specimens, took photographs, and planted that British flag in the cold, cold ground. But their six months' worth of supplies started to disappear. They figured they'd hunt for food. But they were scientists and not very good hunters. That's not that a scientist couldn't have been a good hunter. It's just, you know, these scientists weren't. And neither was Ada. She had spent her time learning in a missionary school. But she did what she could. With the change of seasons, it started getting incredibly cold. Ice formed in the sea around the island. The party had little food, which makes for a pretty lame party. The five thought it couldn't have gotten worse. Were they right? They were worse than right. They were wrong. One of the guys got sick. He had scurvy and was not doing well. Also, and this is the real kicker, there was a boat that was supposed to come pick them up after a year. It was called the teddy bear. But the teddy bear couldn't get through all the ice, so they just turned around. Just turned around and left them. It was decided that the three not-sick men would try to make it across the ice of the frozen sea to Siberia and get help. Ada would stay behind and take care of the remaining sick, scurvied scientist. As you might expect, those other men were never seen again. For months, Ada tended to the sick man. She hated guns, but knew she'd need to learn to shoot. Practicing wasn't easy because she couldn't do it too much. The noise aroused the curiosity of wild animals and not the kind she wanted to hunt. Instead, it brought fearsome polar bears. And those bears can be bad news bears if you've got no real place to hide. Growing increasingly comfortable, she hunted the frozen land. 
She built a lookout tower to spot the polar bears coming from miles away, and she even built a rack above her bed for her rifle so that no bear could surprise her in the middle of the night. When the not-sick-but-never-seen-again scientists left, they didn't take any of their stuff. Left behind was a typewriter, which she used to make regular journal entries. They also left all of their photography equipment. Ada experimented with the cameras, taking some of the most extreme weather early selfies of the 1900s. Try as she might, though, she was no match for the combined efforts of cold weather and scurvy. The man in her care passed away, leaving Ada alone. But she never wavered. She knew she had to survive and get back home to get her son. Cold, ice, wolves, and bears were no match for the indomitable spirit of Ada Blackjack. She dressed herself in reindeer skin, fed herself from the frozen wilderness, protected herself from her lookout perch, and even continued to snap pics of herself with the camera left behind. It was a cold, lonely existence. But she mastered it. Her perseverance paid off. Lo and behold, one day, two years after arriving on the island, she saw a boat. This was the boat that would bring her home once again to Nome. The crew was impressed at how she had adapted so greatly to the challenging life. One witness on the ship wrote, Blackjack had mastered her environment so far that it seems likely she could have lived there another year, although the isolation would have been a dreadful experience. As soon as she got to Nome, she found her son. Using her pay from the ordeal, which was not as much as she had been promised, she traveled to Seattle, where Bennett would receive the necessary treatment. Doctors were pretty successful, and he survived, living well into adulthood. Ada, of course, became a sensation of sorts. But as so often happened to people without privilege who did remarkable things throughout history, other people made more money off of her story than she ever did. That part is sad. But the happy part is that she spent the rest of her life with Bennett. She died in 1983 and was buried next to him. Her story is not regularly told, but should be more so. Because of a famous book about a castaway, she is commonly referred to as a real-life Robinson Crusoe. But truthfully, she should just be remembered as the one and only Ada Blackjack. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. 
So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For You Have 30 Seconds this month, here comes Sylvie to tell us about a woman who was many things, and one of those things was also a parent. I'm Sylvia and I'm here to talk about Harriet Tubman. Harriet was born in slavery and was inspired by the story of Moses. So Harriet decided to run away, and through the Underground Railroad, she led hundreds to freedom. But when the Civil War broke out, Harriet was was in. She became a spy and led 150 soldiers while becoming the first woman to do this. Um, She also freed 700 from slavery during the mission. Awesome. I was just listening to an episode of Side Door, which is a podcast that the Smithsonian puts out, and they did an episode about this photograph that they found of Harriet Tubman just recently. It was like 2017, and it was a photograph from when she was like much younger than we picture her. Like she was 45, I think, in the picture, and it was such a cool thing. Thanks, Sylvie. Great job. If anyone else out there has a You Have 30 Seconds, there's instructions on our website, thepastandthecurious.com. We'd love to hear from you. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Quiz time. Here we go. Parents. Which of these presidential pairs were father and son? William Henry Harrison and Benjamin Harrison. John Adams and John Quincy Adams. Or Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. William Henry Harrison was president for one month. He got sick at his inauguration and died 31 days later. Benjamin Harrison was not his son, though. He was his grandson. And Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Delano Roosevelt? Well, they were distant cousins. John Adams and John Quincy Adams were father and son. John Adams served one four-year term as the second president of the United States, and his son John Quincy also served only a single term as our sixth president. Question number two. Mary Wollstonecraft was a writer and philosopher in the 1700s who fought fiercely for women's rights. It was a time that this was unusual and she is seen as a pioneer, in particular for her book, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Her daughter would go on to be a famous writer herself. In fact, one we featured on the show. In many ways, you could claim that she was the inventor of the genre of science fiction. Who is she? Mary Shelley was Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter, and as you may remember, she spent one boring summer cooped up in her house due to a natural disaster. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Well, she used that time to write Frankenstein, or a modern Prometheus, more commonly known today just as Frankenstein. That's quite a mother-daughter duo. Question number three. The famous composer Johann Sebastian Bach wrote a lot of music. He also had a lot of kids. Guess how many he had? Twenty. He had twenty kids. Now, this was back in the early 1700s, and life was a lot harder for people when it came to medical matters. So, uh, sadly, not all of them survived into adulthood. 
However, many of his children became successful musicians and even composers themselves. Sometimes the apple, as they say, doesn't fall too far from the tree. And it would have taken a lot of apples to feed that family. Anna McCoy was a little girl in the mid-1800s, and like many children of the time, she had chores to do. One of her chores was to walk to the post office and retrieve mail addressed to her family. There was no postal carrier delivering to her home in Ypsilanti, Michigan, so Anna would carry any letters or parcels back from the city along the banks of the Huron River to her family's home near the Starkweather farm. The trip was a rare time that she could be away from her siblings and alone with her thoughts. Occasionally, her mind would wander back to the unopened mail in her hand. What the letter said was never shared with Anna. Over time, she grew familiar with some of the names that were written on the envelopes. One in particular caught her attention. Anna noticed that whenever a letter came addressed from a Mr. Hatfield of Cincinnati, Ohio, a set of peculiar circumstances would usually follow. Typically, a few days after receiving Mr. Hatfield's mail, Anna would find her mother Millie in the kitchen, cooking an enormous amount of food. The McCoy family was large, but on these occasions, Millie would bake more bread and cook more ham than the family could possibly eat before it would spoil. Anna also noticed that one night soon after this, the kids would be told, It's good for children to get plenty of sleep, and they were sent to bed early. This felt unusual to Anna. What else was unusual was the unmistakable smell of coffee wafting through the house on these nights. She could smell it from her bed as she laid awake, trying to make sense of what was happening. Her parents usually drank coffee with the sunrise, not as the moon shone through her bedroom window. Stranger still was that when she awoke the next morning, Anna would find nearly nothing left of the large amount of food her mother had spent so much time preparing. She wondered where it all could have gone. Also, on these confusing mornings, after the strange nights, she'd find that her father had left early on a business trip. This, in and of itself, was not unusual. It was common for him to travel for work. George McCoy grew tobacco and made cigars, which he would often load into his horse-drawn wagon to sell in nearby Detroit. Typically, though, when he did this, it wasn't a sudden spur-of-the-moment kind of trip. Anna and the family would have known he was heading out days in advance. She and her siblings probably would have helped him load the wagon, even. These strange mornings, he was just gone. Over the years, Anna would see this happen many times. Although she didn't know everything about her parents, she knew some of their story. As Anna grew older, she would eventually piece together the story of their lives, from before she was born through her childhood years, including those strange coffee-scented nights. Eventually, she would share what she learned in an interview when she was an older woman. Interviews like these are called oral histories. The person giving an oral history simply talks and responds to basic questions to share recollections and more so that their words can be preserved forever. The things they say survive in writing or audio or both, some amazing stories have been collected through the years this way. Luckily for everyone, Anna told the story of her family to another woman who collected these oral histories in the early 1900s. 
The transcript is held in the Eastern Michigan University archives, and it was a primary source for this story. Anna's father, George McCoy, was from Louisville, Kentucky. George's mother was black, and his father was white. According to Anna's memories and family tradition, her grandfather, Henry McCoy, was a reasonably wealthy man of Irish heritage. It's most likely that George's mother was enslaved to his father, Henry, because George himself was also enslaved to Henry, his own father. A son with dark skin owned by his own light-skinned father wasn't unusual at the time. While enslaved, George worked in Henry's successful cigar business. It was here that he would learn the skills that would feed his future family and give him his own sneaky way of fighting slavery. As George grew up, the Ohio River, around which his city was built, loomed large in his life. For the enslaved people of the area, the Ohio River was seen as the barrier to freedom. The free states of Indiana and Ohio were easily seen just on the North Bank. But though it symbolized freedom, the Ohio was also one of the major trade arteries that kept slavery firmly in place. Many enslaved people toiled on farms, growing crops like tobacco, which were then brought in huge quantities to cities along the river to be shipped down the Mississippi River to New Orleans and beyond. Slavery in the city looked different than on farms and plantations. Many of these workers, loading and unloading hogsheads of tobacco, whiskey, and more, were enslaved people whose owners had contracted their labor to companies in charge of shipping and receiving the constant stream of goods along the river. For the owners who held the fate of these human beings, it was a way to make money. For the companies renting their labor, it was cheaper than hiring an employee. For the men and women held in bondage, it was a frustratingly cruel existence working alongside free people of both colors, yet unable to control their own fate. This is the world George grew up around and witnessed daily. But it was not to be his existence forever. When he turned 21, George McCoy was freed by his father and given a horse, a saddle, and $100. Instead of leaving, though, George decided to remain in Louisville and continued to work in his father's cigar business. It appears that George did not want to leave for one big reason. He had fallen in love. Though George was technically free now, his love, Millie, was not. She was legally owned by a wealthy family in downtown Louisville for whom she was a housekeeper. According to tales that she would tell her children, her masters weren't particularly cruel, and she wasn't particularly anxious to leave them. But she was enslaved, and above all, she wanted to be in charge of her own life. She wanted to marry George, and she wanted to raise a family. But she knew it was dangerous to have children while enslaved. Any children she would bring into the world would not be free. These children would legally belong to her owners. And situations like these could be the most devastating of all. Throughout the years, countless families were horrendously torn apart when children were taken and sold, often to be sent far away, making it unlikely that parent and child would ever see each other again. It is impossible to imagine such anguish and heartache. Millie had recently watched her very own brother sold away from the family and did not want the same fate for herself, nor any children that she may have. So she decided running away and heading north in hopes of freedom was her only real chance. 
She and George were married, and soon after, they made their escape. Attempting to escape was dangerous, and most runaway slaves, as they were known at the time, were not successful. George was technically a free man, which may have made it a bit easier for them, but the risks were no less extreme. The pair headed east on the river and laid low in Cincinnati for a while. They had to hide from the eyes of men who were trying to find Millie and return her to her owners in Louisville. Great care was taken everywhere and every day. Newspaper advertisements in the area offered a reward for the escaped slave from Louisville named Millie, even describing the unique and distinguishing mole on her forehead. So anyone that they met could have turned them in. Cincinnati is likely where George and Millie first met Mr. Hatfield, the very same man who would eventually send the letters that their daughter Anna McCoy would retrieve from the post office, and which would lead to her unwrapping the mystery of who her parents were and what they did. Due to Mr. Hatfield's well-known status today as a figure in the Underground Railroad, it is also reasonable to assume that he had a hand in helping the couple safely escape Cincinnati. Eventually, the pair settled on a farm in Ypsilanti, Michigan, where they felt safe and became a part of the community. The McCoy family would grow to include 11 children. Anna was the fourth, and by 1859, she began to make sense of what her parents did beyond their business of tobacco farming and caring for a huge family. One day, while playing in the yard, Anna was surprised to see a man and a woman with three little girls from a distance on the McCoy family property. This was tremendously exciting for young Anna because she desperately wanted to play with these new young faces. But before she could get to them, her mother grabbed her and hurried her away. Terribly upset, she later set out again to find them, searching all over the farm. They were nowhere to be found. With nowhere else to look, she headed to the barn to see if she could find even a clue about the mysterious family. But the barn was empty. No little girls, no parents, and no sign of her father's wagon. The fate of this family was the fate of many other families who passed through the McCoy's Ypsilanti farm. It all had to do with her father's wagon, which he drove to the city regularly loaded down with cigars. George had cleverly built the vehicle to have a false bottom. When it was loaded down with tobaccos and cigars, no one would ever suspect that there was a compartment underneath. It was in this secret compartment that her father would hide fugitive slaves, people who had resisted and fled their enslavement in the South, and made it, amazingly, all the way to Michigan. Even Michigan could still be unsafe, so every precaution had to be taken. George remembered how scary it was and how people helped him to freedom, so he in turn played his own important role in helping. Over the years, dozens of families huddled, cramped inside his wagon, and were covered with crates. To all eyes in town, George looked like any other businessman toting his product. And those letters from Mr. Hatfield that Anna had noticed? Well, they had been sent to let her parents know that the fugitives were on the way, traveling with the help of a secret network of people between Cincinnati and Michigan, all to get them safely to the McCoy family farm. Every step of the journey would be dangerous, and they would have to travel with very little. Knowing fugitives were on the way, Millie would cook those memorably large amounts of food for their hungry bellies. After spending a night in the barn, 
unbeknownst to any of the McCoy children, they'd stealthily be transported in George's wagon on one of his surprise overnight trips. The McCoy family farm was a stop on the Underground Railroad, and Anna's parents helped many other escaped slaves get to the freedom that they deserved. From Ypsilanti, George would take the fugitives to the town of Wyandotte, where they would meet a boat named the Pearl. The Pearl would ferry them across the Detroit River and into the freedom of Canada. It was an elaborate and secretive path for people to follow, and it was dangerous for all involved. If the secret was exposed, it would mean the end of freedom for many fugitives, and it could also mean the same for the people working to break the law in helping these people escape. It is for this reason that most of the people involved in the Underground Railroad never told anyone. Only a few told their children, and some observant children, like Anna, were able to figure it out from watching their brave and committed parents. Many of these stories were lost and will never be known, but luckily, Anna McCoy was able to share the story of her family with us all. Well, okay, everybody. Thank you all so much for listening. This was a really special episode to put together. The McCoy story is one that I have been wanting to put on the show for a couple years now, actually. Um, and it took me a while to figure out how to how to present it in this format for the podcast and uh, I'm, I'm happy to have done so now uh, i also man how about abigail and greg they were awesome i can't wait to have them back thank you to you both and speaking of thank yous i have some patreon people to thank quite a few actually uh hey chris white i have a song for you next month it was a little late getting that uh ultimate tier sponsorship on patreon um We've talked about that. So we'll have something for you in July. But today I wanted to say thank you. Um, Ellen wanted to say thank you to you as well. If there's someone else that I should say thank you to, then just send me a message and I'll thank them next month. Um, I had some really cool emails with a listener named Erica. Uh, Really great, really great conversation. And uh, wanted to thank you for that. And also wanted to say hello to Hugo out there for joining on Patreon as well. Um, So thanks to you both. Um, Oh, yes. I need to give a shout out to somebody, actually, to somebody's in West Virginia. Virginia. Hello, Andrew, Andrew and his cat, Hamilton. Hamilton. Yes. yes. Andrew and Hamilton. What's up, Andrew and Hamilton? Thank you. I bet you're pretty stoked about the July 3rd Hamilton, I'm guessing, about the about the Disney Plus thing. Uh, I'm going to be watching. Oh, I still have more people to thank, too, in fact. Here we go. Bayless Cummings. Big Sky Bayless. Thank you so much. We're so happy you're out there listening. Thank you very much. And last but not least, but I was late, so late but not least, but last, whatever, Hayden Ellett. Hayden. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're out there. Hayden, Hayden, And everybody else out there, yeah, you, thank you too. I'm glad you're listening. My name is Mick Sullivan. This is The Past and the Curious. We'll be back next month with more fun. 